What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. All right, welcome back, Nightmare Success, in and out listeners. It's where you come to hear what happens when your worst fear becomes your reality. How do you adapt, survive, overcome, set yourself free? Well, I'm excited. I've got a great guest. Uh, I mean, you guys might have heard of Ian Beck because he's been, uh, they did a documentary on Ian on HBO Max. Um, he's got a nationally known show. It's called Locked In. It's on YouTube and uh, wherever you get your podcast, but we were just talking, he's got over 200,000, well, just about 200,000 subscribers now on YouTube. He's, he's getting it. He's, I mean, and, and it doesn't surprise me because his story is one that he just, he went out there and saw it, got it and started making things happen at a very young age. You know, he was one of those kids it was picked on when he was little. I, I want to get into that because I think it plays into how he went about himself when he got into high school. But um, he was uh, – uh, he went from the kid that got picked on in an early age and became kind of the cool kid. And at 15, 16 years old, uh, he's putting together these epic parties. I mean, epic parties if you watch the uh hbo max thing and seeing all the stuff going on with the foam and the, uh, it's just crazy crazy stuff and he, he owned a nightclub at 18 18 years old and he grew that business and he's having nationally known acts come and it all spiraled out of control and uh it is just one hell of a story and i'm very excited to get into it before we get into that though i want to recognize our show sponsor otter plaza direct you know, who likes spending a couple of weekends walking car lots looking for a car? Then you spend four or five hours in the dealership to buy a car. It's kind of like an appointment for a root canal. Well, there's a better way to take away all that pain and pleasure, not not pleasure, pain, and hassle getting a car. Auto Plaza Direct, they're your personal car concierge. Just tell them the car you want, what you can pay, and they'll go find that car for you. They'll negotiate your best price. They also offer you warranties and financing. It's all full service. Go to autoplazadirect.com to get started with your personal car concierge. The new hassle-free way, the car buying experience you deserve, Auto Plaza Direct. Tell them Brent from Nightmare Success sent you. All right, Ian Bick, welcome. Thank you. That was quite the intro. I appreciate <laughs> you having me, man. Well, I uh, I was watching your the uh, HBO show, and I'm, I'm convinced – that uh, what they covered in that 50-some-odd minutes could easily end up being something on Netflix or some series because it is incredibly fascinating. But, Ian, I want to get into, because one of the things that I thought was interesting was is that as a kid, you know, you were, and you talk about it, you were picked on. And can you, can you kind of walk us through your early childhood i know you had the um you were kind of into the acting and went to the acting camps but can let everybody know kind of what it was like for ian growing up as a kid um i you know i was i was just this you know like chubby little like kid that was just like full of energy and and life and and always kind of wanted to be like the 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 center um, of attention, I guess you could say. Um, I did theater in, in my early years and then even getting into high school, I did the play all four years, the musical. And, uh, I, I like performing. I like being on stage. Uh, I was the kid that ran the lemonade stands and the kid that, um, did the, um, that tried to sell candy out of my <laughs> backpack yeah. in middle school. And I was always just like a fun kid to be around, but you know, kids like that, the ones that stand out are always typically the ones that are like the outcasts and that get like picked on. And because it's, it's, it's against the norm. It's not your normal individual. That's yeah, true. I, I mean, I remember I was a kid that uh, doing crazy things. I'd take 
my parents' clothes out of their closet and grab my brother, and we try to sell it at the end of the driveway. So, yeah, crazy stuff. <laughs> so, but Ian, when you, as you got a little bit older, I remember there's a story, and you were like 14 years old. Your dad, you kind of admire, well, you admired your dad a lot. And he had this business, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, you were like 14 years old, and he says, hey, you think you could do this? He says, yeah, absolutely I could do it. Hey, what, all, what all did you do when you were 14 years old when your dad asked you how to, if you could, if you could do and put on this, uh, was it a party? Um, so I was always like a worker at a very young age. Like I was the kid that went around the neighborhood shoveling snow and doing landscaping and working for my mom around the house. Like I was always like, I always knew that, you know, hard work equaled money and I wanted money to buy like the new Xbox or the new PlayStation or whatever it is that I was saving up for at the time. Um, so I was in my mind trained very hard that in order to get money, you had to work for it. Um, so I would always tag along with my dad to events and kind of be like the, um, the bus boy. Cause he was in catering or like sanitation and, you know, putting the glasses and the silverware away. Festival in Danbury. And he had, he had another event somewhere else that night. Um, and he was talking to someone saying they needed him to do this, this and that. And then, you know, I overheard and I went up to him and was like, I could do all this. Don't worry about it. And I was in eighth grade. So I was, I think I was like 13, almost 14. And, um, while this is all going on, there's like a cop standing behind us. That was like the school resource officer that, that had picked up some extra uh, hours off duty to work this event. And he's like kind of watching this whole thing transpire. And then when my dad left, I took command and I'm telling the wait staff and the volunteers what to do. I'm organizing this for like an event for like 400 people. Uh, and at the end of the night, my dad comes back and the, the cop goes up to my dad. He's like, is that your son? He's like, yeah. And he's like, you know, he's just, he's incredible. Like that would, I've never seen anything like that before. Wow. Well, then this, then it kind of seems like it transpired. You, you, you were a kid in the neighborhood that you had a couple other friends that you guys did some stuff, fireworks and crazy things. And, and you ended up getting in trouble. Yeah, we were the, we were the black sheep of the community. That's for sure. Um, but you know, we weren't out there to try to bother anyone. We were just doing our own thing and that in turn pissed off kind of like the adults. Um, you know, I feel like when you're a kid and you're doing things, sometimes adults can get jealous or they didn't grow up that way. They could see you in a different light. I think for out my whole life, I was always misunderstood. I'm probably still misunderstood today um, by a lot of people. Um, I think people kind of get the wrong idea of me um, and then they form an opinion on that. And, you know, that takes it into a, like a negative direction. But I think all, all throughout growing up and in my later years, I was always just like a misunderstood kid. Well, so I think if I remember right, you guys ended up putting some foam on some cars and, and it ends up being that you guys get community service and yeah, which you end up taking this community service to a whole nother level and which kind of gives you the <laughs> confidence that, Hey, maybe I can do this for a lot more than just what I'm trying to do with this community service. Yeah. I mean that, night that we got caught foaming these cars started everything. I mean, like you look back on everything. I wouldn't be talking to you right now if we never foamed those cars that night, I probably would have went off to college and, you know, did whatever, but that kind of started everything for me. So what did you do? You went to the principal or how did it all happen? Because you, you ended up having this party raised a decent amount of money and, of. Uh, what, like, what was your genesis of your idea of, hey, I'm going to take this community service and turn it into something where I think they even wrote it up about how cool it was that you put it together? I'm a very, like, creative, visionary person. Like, I, when, when I plan something, I can see an ending to it. Um, so, like, I always look at the could be's and what could be um, from it, which has gotten me into trouble in the past because I'm overly optimistic. So, when I would pull off certain events or try to do certain things. I'm always thinking like what it could end up into. And that would, um, 
be very ambitious. I was always very ambitious and, and overly optimistic. But in regards to that, I mean, it was just, um, it just clicked, you know, like for me, when I, when an idea pops in my head, there's a good chance, like if I'm for, I'm going to carry it out all the way. So I just saw a direct correlation from the success of the event to being able to turn it into a business and making it profitable and scaling it. And I like doing it. Um, so that just all clicked for me all together. And you ended up having it at a cool place. It was called the, Ma- the Matrix, which ended up being, you know, I think that's it. As you got bigger in your business, you even actually had a, an office there at, <laughs> I don't know, what age were you, 15 or 16? I was 16 when I had my first office at this giant corporate center, <laughs> and crazy. I was working for them too. I know, dude, it was insane. <laughs> Um, I was working for them and um, I was helping them see the thing. They liked me because I was a hard worker, Yeah. but also I was on student council and I knew other schools. So I started getting proms for them. Um, I got them probably like two or $300,000 in prom revenue that year. Um, Which is just, nuts. You know, yeah. getting, that's just crazy. I mean, really, I think that's a perfect business for any 16 year old to do, you go to your local banquet center and say, Hey, I'll help. I'll, if you're, it's, it's kind of like what politics is now today, you yeah. know, like if, if you're connected to someone like that's, it's literally like insider trading, but on a high school <laughs> level. Um, and you're going and you're saying, Hey, um, you know, like we could get these people or we could have our prom there, you know? So I think the whole marketing and, and really what I was, I wasn't a business person. I was a marketer and I just knew how to put the pieces together. Which is pretty incredible when you're when you think about the type of things you're doing, and I think it's interesting that those people gravitated to you, these adults uh, that wanted to hire you, and said, "Hey, you you could end up being you know somebody that we can uh, connect the dots with and make some money." Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they liked me, and they liked that I was a hard worker. Um, you know, I would set up meetings for them. I would work late. Um, I was 16 working till like midnight. They were like, uh, make sure you, you know, you, you punch out by this time because of labor laws and stuff. And I was like, okay, I'd punch out and I get back right to work. And like, I, it wasn't about money. You know, I wanted to get the job done. Well, when this stuff started, cause you were having these like epic parties, even at your, at your house. And I thought it was funny because it, you know, somebody asked you, you know, like, did you get a lot of phone calls and stuff? And you said you were more or less in a Jewish uh, lake community. So a lot of the people weren't even there. They weren't, they weren't home. They'd gone down to Florida and you're having these gigantic parties. The only thing that I thought was, uh, incredible is, is that some of the times, you know, you tell your parents, you know, there's going to be like 20, 25 people that show up and, you know, there was like three or 400 people that showed up. Yeah, it was, it was nuts. Um, they definitely got mad at me, especially when I kept saying there would only be 50 and then there would be a few hundred every time. Um, we outgrew that very quickly. Well, and, and the, the other thing I thought you, you had that whole service thing, even in the party scene at a home is that you were talking about, you know, you had the, you know, the nacho bar set up, you had, you know, the, the bar, the, the sodas, the everything that, you know, that wasn't just some, like some kids showing up in a basement, no, nothing to do. You, you were actually scaling this thing to, you know, an event. I'm all, I treat everything like an event. I treat my podcast like an event. Everything is like a, about the experience. That's what I've learned through like catering and watching my dad. And you're really only as good as your last event or your last podcast or your last whatever, you know, cause that's what people look at you as. They're not looking at the, like, that's like if you lose a football game or a sports game, they're not looking at you of all the wins you got before they're looking at you for your last game. So what's going on at school when all this is happening? Um, school, I'm paying kids to do my homework. My mom was even writing essays for me. Um, <laughs> I mean, I was just, I was in full business mode. I, I did not care. I decided I wasn't going to college. And um, it was just, you know, I would answer my phone midway through a class to take a business call with like a, a venue or whatever. Um, I would just do whatever I had to do. Um, I would leave early. I just, I, I didn't really care at that point. School was not on my plate anymore. It was just a, a, a mean, like my parents said, I needed a high school diploma. So I did what I had to do to get that. Um, but I wasn't taking it seriously. So this whole tuxedo junction thing, can you lead us into how all that transpired? And, and cause I think the first, the first you talk the guy into the first go in is, 
to lo- to use the small lobby room, but you had your eyes set on the big the big room to have the the gigantic experience. Yeah, I mean, so I I ended up meeting this nightclub owner named Al, and um, I convinced him to let me rent his nightclub out, and he gave me the front room, and I ended up selling that room out on like a Wednesday night in the summer with like three or four hundred kids. He was impressed. He ends up giving me the big room. And then all of a sudden, like each event goes from 300 kids to the last one was like 2,500 kids. Um, and I'm making, I'm a junior in high school, making 10 grand a month, once a, once a month, once a month, um, doing this in one night, just profit cash. It was, it was crazy throwing like these teen parties, themed teen parties. So what are you thinking in your mind? Are you thinking, oh my God, I'm going to just be a multimillionaire. All I got to do is scale this thing and, and, or is, is $10,000, is, is that enough? And you're just thinking, I, I've got a lot of walking around money. And that's the other thing. You you were the guy that could take everybody out and do all the stuff and, and you know, cover everybody when they didn't have any money. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I loved it. Um, you know, I loved the attention I was getting. I loved um, the business I was building. To me, it, w- it was fun. It wasn't work. Um, it was driving my creativity. It gave me something to do. It was my hobby. It was my passion. Um, I felt, uh, like I had purpose doing that and they just kept going and going. I mean, I bet you if the first one failed, then I probably would be thinking about things differently. But the truth was every one was more successful than the last one that gave me a lot of motivation to keep going. It's crazy. It's, and the, I thought it was, crazy that you put all these things, these parties together, but really, and you said that you didn't really enjoy the party itself. It was a lot of stress. Yeah. I never had really a good time. I mean, occasionally at the club nights, I'd dance a little bit, you know, but it was, everything was work. It was making sure everyone was having a good time, you know, days of an event, even when I was doing the parties all the way up to when I was booking the biggest acts in the world, my phone's constantly going off. Even now, like, in the podcast world, everyone needs something. Everyone's reaching out, responding to messages. You know, like I have two phones just to deal with everything because I also have clients for my social media business that I, I'm building in our studio. So it's just constant go, 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 go all the time. Um, but days of events, like my phone would literally freeze because I was getting so many text messages from people asking to get on the guest list or they needed this or that. Well, let's talk about the next step, because when you start scaling this thing, you start taking in investors. And from what I understand from it is that, I mean, you, everybody sees, Hey, this is the Ian Bick show. And these are Ian Bick parties. And, and you, you basically become a brand and you wanted to take it to the next level, get big acts. And you brought people in. And one of the things that you had in, your contract was is you guaranteed their return, which obviously put a little extra pressure on you to perform. Yeah. I mean, I was just so um, confident in my success and optimistic that everything would work out that it was like, I didn't put that in there as like a scam to entice people or anything. I was just so sure that everything was going to work out. And then when things didn't work out, that forced me into a corner to start lying to try to make things right to fulfill my original promise, which each lie, you know, you tell just digs you into a deeper hole. Um, so this thing that started out so innocently that failed organically on its own took like this whole deep dive um, into something that I never planned for it to become. Well, and the, the thing that I, I was when watching your the documentary you really didn't know that it wasn't a success because I mean, looking at the film and seeing the people in the party and everybody's, you know, going crazy, you know, there was the night that, you know, you thought you killed it and everybody's, uh, you know, jumping and dancing and, and the guy comes up to you and he says, we lost our ass tonight. And you're like, why, why, what happened? And, and I think you had 1300 people there and he needed 2000 people to, to get to uh, a break even point. What, what were your thoughts when that happened? Because in your mind, you're thinking, hell, we've done this. We promoted it. It's a success. Now you've got these investors and you didn't even break even. 
I was sick, man. Like I thought, cause up until that point, everything I've only seen success, I had never failed. Um, so to me, like I, like I couldn't imagine, you know, that, that, that this run was over. Um, and also it just put me in a bad position because I had never lied to my friends before. And I felt like I was being forced into a, into a corner where like, if I told them what happened, it would make me a liar anyways, because I'd been telling them this whole time based off of information that I was being given that it was the shows were making money. Um, and then, you know, they were at the show, they could have thought maybe he's just saying they didn't make money so he could keep it all or whatever. It was just, it was a really sticky situation. Ultimately I made the, the wrong choice in that matter, but that was like that one moment that defined the rest of my life forever. I get it though, because I mean, like you said, at that time, everybody's seeing you as a big success. Everybody's seeing, oh my God, Ian's the guy that he can make everything happen. He can, you know, he sells the vision and then it happens. And the pain of telling somebody that, hey, it didn't work out. You've got people that are invested that are friends of yours and you have to, there's a fork in the road right there. You either say, hey, it's a bust, we've lost, or you take the other path and say, no, we're good. We just need to do more of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, being in that position at, I was 17 at the time. Um, I mean, that's a, it's a very difficult position for an adult to be in. So, you know, a 17 year old, um, it was tough. It was stressful. Um, and, and, you know, I just, I wanted to take it all on my own. Um, and, and, you know, I just made the wrong choice in that. And there was a time, Ian, that you had kind of buffered yourself with what, like five, six hundred thousand dollars that was gonna be your way back to payback and get yourself into taking the stress off and, and getting a whole nother a fresh start. So how did all that happen? And then what happened? Um, I mean essentially we ended up after these string of concerts failed, I got into this electronics business, uh, which with my best friend at the time, and they ended up turning out to be fake. But before I found out they were fake and unsellable, we raised all this money in, 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 in from investors that, you know, we were promising a 50% rate of return to at structured as a loan, because we thought that we could resell these the electronics for three or 400%. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, first returns are coming back to people and we're using one loan to pay off another loan until we can sell the electronics. Um, people are like, wow, this is legit. And then all of a sudden everyone starts giving their money, um, to us. And I think it was like June or July, I was 18, 2013. And, um, you know, we had like $600,000 in the bank, um, raised from this business. Um, and you know, I, things were coming together and I made a, a ton of bad investments. I'd put 250 grand into concerts, some more into like random businesses, a hundred thousand into this first nightclub I started. Um, and then, um, you know, we, we used some of the money to buy like a pair of jet skis for the company that, you know, we thought if you could have a company car, you could have a company jet skis. We <laughs> took some trips, uh, bought some clothes, but it was, it was minimal, probably like a hundred grand. We were figuring, you know, like if, um, if that's our salary, you know, we weren't taking a salary. So that's our salary. Um, it's kind of, makes there sense. Just, I, I, yeah, there, I, there was, I was no surprised, you know, I was surprised Ian, how big of a deal they made out of the jet skis. Because that was the only thing I, I that, when you look back on it, that was literally the only thing when you, if you subtract the jet skis, it's like, wait, what, what did they get out of this? Right. Because there's a couple trips that the investors went on themselves um, with me looked like great we, trips. Yeah. I think, I think the jet skis were unintentionally the most damaging thing about this whole thing. It was, um, the, it was the biggest thing that, that, that they talked about. And I, I kept coming back to the thing. Well, gosh, they're like $10,000 jet skis, you know, it's, yeah, we're I talking mean, about was, a, a lot <laughs> of money and, and they, they zeroed in on that. Ian went out and got some jet skis cause he liked jet skis. Yeah. I mean like that was literally the, I mean, all right, so $20,000 on jet skis out of hundreds of thousands of dollars of business, you know, they focus so much on that. 
and it, it's a very complicated case. Like this story could literally be its whole series in itself. There's so many twists and turns. Like I always tell people one character that you might find never knows who the other character is because there's just so many different time points. I went through these stages where there would be people in my life for two months and then a new group of people would be in my life. And then you have the nightclub, you have the electronics, you have the pre high school events, you have the events in high school, you have prison, like there's all these elements <laughs> to it. And then you have my second act, which is, you know, the, this podcasting yeah. world. So there's so many elements, so many twists and turns, so many different, uh, ways that this narrative um, unfolds. Well, and there were times, you know, you got into some people, some like unsavory people when you were desperately trying to, to get loans and money to pay back other people. Did you ever, and and the one guy, um, I think he, I think he actually died, but he, the uh, guy that had gotten the, uh, what was it? Uh, like a million dollars or something because he was at a gym and the, the cord came back and took his eye out. You got money from him and you know, you had these, these things. When was it that you, started feeling like that something could really go bad? Um, I think it was December 2013. That's like when the last, co- I held out hope until the very last concert failed. Um, and you had some people that just didn't show up. I mean, you, the, yeah, the, the snowstorm, the whole deal that where you had these guys and you're paying them ahead of time because you're the new guy on the block and then they just don't show up. If everything went according to plan and all these shows worked out, I would have been a millionaire and everything would have been great and it would have been a success story and no one would have cared because it all would have made money, but they all lost. It was like a series of very unfortunate events over this period of time. So you start feeling like it's coming down on, um, are you talking to your parents about this? Um, I didn't tell my parents until it was too late. Like after, like right when like the local police investigation was beginning was, was when my dad found out and my mom found out once like the FBI investigation started. Um, so I, I, you know, people blame them or say they should have been more. So what, what was your mom and dad's reaction to, to it? I mean, they were, they were shocked, you know, like they want to, they want to help me that it's a, they, they love their son they want to do whatever they can to help them. They, my dad wishes that I involved him sooner, you know? Um, but I mean, it's one of those things where like, if, if I had involved them in the beginning, maybe the feds would have been, you know, charging him. You just, you, you, yeah. you really don't know. I mean, everything worked out, um, the way it, it did for a reason. So tell me when you get called in. You're meeting with the the feds. You walk into the room as a, what, 17-year-old? At that point, I was 18. I had started, there was a local investigation. um, And then I had a local lawyer. It wasn't really going anywhere. Then I got called to the Department of Banking. And um, after I meet with the Department of Banking for like five hours and tell them everything, like with every document, putting all the pieces, making their whole case for them, just thinking I was doing the right thing. Um, the, the postal inspectors are waiting for me. That's when they serve me with a target letter, let me know I'm under investigation and the rest is history after that. Well, I think the, the meeting itself was, was interesting Ian, cause you know, you've got this guy that's the, uh, the main U S attorney, assistant U S attorney that you call the silver Fox. And, mm-hmm. uh, he's talking to you and he's telling you, you know, you're in, you're in trouble and you're typing a text on your phone. And what's your, what's your response to you? You actually respond to him telling him what you're doing. Yeah. I told them that, um, I didn't really care about this. It's a, it's a whole board room with FBI agents, U.S. attorneys, assistant U.S. attorneys, their interns that they had working for them, all these agents, and it's me, my lawyer, and my dad, and he's going on it. It's this thing called a reverse proffer where you go in and they tell you everything that they have on you and where the case is heading, and I'm just looking at my phone responding to texts, and he's like, I don't even think you're taking this seriously, and he's, and I'm like, honestly, I have more important things to worry about. I have a sold-out show at my nightclub tomorrow night, um, and he just it was over after that. He was not happy with that. 
I mean, the guy still does not like me. You hear about cases <laughs> where like the defendants are like kind of friendly with the prosecutors or whatever, or, or in these cases like Jordan Belfort or whatnot. Yeah. But this guy, he, he thinks, I think this is the biggest case of his career, yeah. uh, which doesn't say much because it wasn't like a big case, but he's just nasty individual um, holds a grudge, you know, um, I always bring it up to my lawyer all the time. Um, when, when I'm with them and stuff, you know, dealing with like the financial litigation unit and this and that. And he's like, yeah, I will bring him. He just does not like you. Um, but you know that if you have that much hatred towards someone or, or like after all these years, you yeah. know? Yeah. It's kind of wild. And I think, I mean, do you think that's the reason why they took you down and arrested you the way they did that was what 24 48 hours later uh that was six months later after that oh, it was six months later yeah it was it was it was it was um that meeting was in july 2013 i ended up getting indicted oh actually that was 2014 i got indicted january 2015 um but you know they just i was in their face i was running the club they weren't happy about that they tried to get the club shut down at every twist and turn um, I was just very in your face. I think they never expected the case to go to trial because you're, you're dealing with an 18 year old kid. Yeah. It, he's never taken the case to trial against the feds, you know? So well, nobody does. They, yeah. <laughs> I think they thought it was going to be an open and close case yeah. for them. And it wasn't, you know, it went on for years. I went to trial. I fought to the bitter end, you know, it's always still a fight. I think you're, you're fighting now when, when you're trying to get redemption and make things right. You know, it's a constant battle. And now we're going on 10 years, uh, you know. Yeah. And, it, you know, and I think it really does take 10 years of, a, you know, when you talk about any of us that go through uh, the federal system, it takes about 10 years of your life. You know, you're, when, when it starts to when you feel like you're finally getting your feet back, you know, under you and you're, and you're, tr you're starting your second chance. But I was... I was curious when you left that meeting and you had that room full of people and it's all feds, um, even though you were pushing back, even though you were saying, Hey, I've got bigger things going on. What was going on in your head? What were you thinking? I just, I was so focused on the nightclub because I always figured that, you know, if I make the nightclub work, then everyone will get paid back. If I sell the nightclub, that that's my ticket out of here just to make it right. That was always my intention. And that's what I wanted to fulfill. I mean, that's what keeps me going to this day. So your thought was that I'm not that concerned, even though it's the federal government and they're looking at me, they're targeting me. Your thought was, Hey, I'm 18 years old. If I can make this good, um, uh, and make it all work they'll go away yeah that's fine i, I mean it, it was just like i'm just you know thinking like if i could just make this right you know then eh, nothing's gonna matter like i just need to pay everyone back that was like my goal and your your mom your dad what what are they saying to you through this time period that you're in limbo between, you know, the, the court the trial. Parents ever really prepared for this. Um, so they were trying to be as supportive as possible. They came to every court hearing my dad, because I didn't have my license at the time I was suspended. So he drove me to every court hearing, um, you know, just being as supportive and, and as loving as possible. What, what can any parent really do in that situation? You know? Yeah. All I can do is support you. So since not very many people go to trial, 97% of the people that are indicted, they, they plea bargain out. You went to trial. What, what was your trial like? Uh, it was interesting. It was almost a month long. Um, I testified for two days. Um, it was actually pretty crazy because they had like all these Yale law interns there um, that were like taking notes and they were like, great job afterwards. It was like, it was like another theater show. The prosecutor was getting mad uh, of the way I was testifying. Um, but over, I mean, most people, like you see what happened with Sam Bankman freed. Yeah. Well, I never got mad at the prosecutor and you just, it, that, that, it, that's one of the hardest things you ever have to do, you know? But I think when you're confident in your story and you're sharing your story and you're real and authentic, I mean, that's how, how I was able to find success on social media. 
I just think in those situations that you have all these charges, they overcharge you. Sure. You know, it's very, very hard to win. You know, the odds are stacked against with you to begin with. And a normal jury just doesn't understand all the jargon and, and the wording and this and that. Yeah, and I think, Ian, what, the other thing that happens, too, is when you go into a courtroom, you know, they say you're innocent until proven guilty, but really what happens is, is that you walk into a courtroom and the jury supposes that they wouldn't have spent all this time on this unless there was something wrong. And so they come in as the, you know, the United States of America government against Ian Bick. So yeah. it's, a, it's a tough it's a tough um, uphill battle when you get into that courtroom with yeah, the jury. It's a hundred percent guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. So when, so when Ian, do you get standing up there and they're going to sentence you? What are you thinking? You thinking of what's going to happen? I mean, at that point I kind of always already knew I was, I was into trouble because, um, my bond had yeah, got revoked while I was on supervised release. I was going out of state. So I knew I was facing jail time, but I was hoping that I'd get like house arrest. I mean, the government was asking the guidelines were like 10 to 12 years. Government was asking seven to eight. I was, my lawyer was asking for probation house arrest. So the judge kind of met in the middle and gave me three years, um, prison, one year home confinement, three years supervised release. Um, which, you know, like when you're saying three years, it feels like a whole lifetime, you know, I mean, looking back on it now, it's pretty light. Um, but when you're living in the moment, it, it feels like forever. So you, I, I didn't know that your bond got revoked. So did you actually, were you in jail when, did they take you immediately or remand you to jail right after the sentencing? No. Well, so what happened was I was on bond the whole trial almost a year after the trial too, because sentencing kept getting pushed. And then um, about a month before sentencing, my bond got revoked. So I was in jail and got transported to the court for sentencing and then went back to jail. Yeah. Yeah. I was in for about 21 days. I had like 21 days of credit or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's not someplace you want to be is jail. I mean, for those who, not at all. (laughs) I mean, for those who don't know, there's a big difference between jail and prison because, you know, jails is transitory place that, you know, all kinds of everybody is in there either for a DWI or somebody just killed somebody and there's violence, there's all kinds of weirdness that's going on at any given moment, and people can't even get outside. And you get to prison. We, let's, let's talk about that. So when you get to prison, mm-hmm. you're a young guy. I mean, what you're walking through, and this is going to be, you know, you're not going to be here for a week or, or a, uh, you know, a, a year. You could be here for a while. What? Which, do you have any strategies walking into this place or are you just walking in as Ian Bick, hope everything's okay? I mean, I think my strategy was always, like I'm just always an optimistic person. So it was just to try to make it through and be friendly to everyone. I didn't really know what to expect. I, the only prison show I had watched was like Orange is the New Black. So yeah. I was going into this like very blind. Um, no one can really prepare you for this, but I will say I, I figured out that it was very different than what I expected once I got to like the low security and the camp federal prisons when, you know, there's no fence or it's run kind of like a college campus It's and you're not locked in a cell all day. So it was, it was cool to experience all sides of the prison system. That's for sure. So how did you work your (laughs) way around in the prison world? What, uh, do you have a good prison job? Did you like, what, what all happened with you? And I, it was because everybody does their time differently. Well, the, the inmates called me McLovin, um, <laughs> and they also, some of the guards would call me Squints from the Sandlot. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, like I, I moved around to a lot of different federal prisons, um, series of unfortunate events, got caught with a cell phone at Fort Dix, a low security, went to Danbury. I got caught up in an investigation because I dated a guard's cousin. So oh, he no. reported wait, it. Wait, 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 what? <laughs> uh, I dated his cousin because I went back to Danbury where I'm from and I dated his cousin like a year before or two years before. So he had a report that he came to my house for dinner before that he knew me. It was a conflict of interest. Oh my God. So just like things like that. Um, And I I went on con air. I went, uh, I was in solitary, the shoe for a few months. Then I, you know, I finished the last year out in Wisconsin 
um, where it was in the middle of nowhere, but it was a camp. Uh, it was a very sweet spot. It was like kind of like Otisville, so I've heard. You know, tennis courts, bocce ball court, volleyball court, very laid back. Um, just, you know, it, it was it was crazy. Guys were like smuggling in McDonald's and eating Chinese food on the weekends and doing all this. It was just a, it was a, a really insane experience. Um, I was a snow shoveler for a little bit. I was um, the prison baker. I made cheesecakes as a little hustle. Okay. I did gambling. Um you know, I was just kind of like all over the place. <laughs> well, I, 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 I heard somewhere and I, maybe it was on one of your other interviews. You were talking about a guy came to you and he said he, he need so much, you know, money on his books. And you figured a way of guys that were uh, a lot bigger and in very good shape. And you figured out how to pay them some commissary and you didn't really have any problems after that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I just, I titled it as like paying for protection in prison and went viral, but it really wasn't that. It was just like, I just befriended people and, and saw they needed stuff and I took care of them. And I think that's, that kind of applies to life, you know, like helping someone when they're kind of down and they're looking out for you in general. Um, it wasn't like, Hey, yo, give me a hundred bucks a week and I'll, and I'll protect you. You know, right. it just kind of like naturally unfolded. Um, but you know, I'm a likable person with a personality and I was able to kind of navigate and survive. I mean, looking back on, I don't know how I didn't get severely hurt. Um, but <laughs> I made it through, I got lucky and now I have the story from it and I never would have expected that prison itself would be the thing that would make me successful. Well, it, and it is, it is an odd thing Ian, because you, you don't know what to think when you go into prison. And it's one of those places where the only way you know about it is to go in and you're an inmate. But it's an interesting environment because it's so primitive. And I, I, I've found it, if you had trouble on the outside getting along with people, you were going to have trouble on the inside getting along with people. If you could get along with people on the outside, you could probably get along with people on the inside. And it's, it's you know, a, a place of respect. And if you show people respect, uh, they show it back to you usually. And, and it's, it's uh, one of my biggest probably surprises in prison was, is that there was a lot of good people in there that had made mistakes, but uh, you know, it wasn't like what I had seen or thought when I was uh, watching TV and thinking about, you know, what I was going to do when I went in. Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of people that helped me get set up immediately that I was like, wow, this is, uh, I, I thought I was going to get stabbed and raped and in a fight here in the first, you know, 30 minutes. And these guys are helping me, showing me how to make my bed, cleaning my locker. You know, it was a whole different deal, showing me where I needed to go and how to do it. And it was like, wow, these guys. Yeah, there can be some very friendly people um, in prison um, that are just want to look out for people too. And there's also people that are not in your best interests. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like everywhere else, you can get into a lot of shit. Or you can stay out of it. And, you know, there's two ways to go in prison. You know, there's, you can get into it and stay in it, or you can just try to do your time the best you can and eat the time, you know, as you can by staying busy. And, and, you know, you finally get, so I want to talk about you, you end up getting close to the door. Are you thinking, ah, Ian Bick coming out, I'm going to redo and become what I was doing before? Or were you thinking new start, new ideas, I've got a new plan? What what was going through your head as far as how you're going to reenter the world? Uh, you froze there for a sec. Did I freeze up? Yeah, but so um, what was going through my head was, you know, I, I was very focused on getting back into the nightclub business. Um, I figured that's where I was going to find redemption, finish what I started, get out and, and rebuild that. And when I got out, I realized it was going to be a lot harder than I expected it to be. Um, just the optics of it, um, you know, supervised release, probation, finding investors, everything like that was going to be complicated. So I ultimately ended up settling for a job at Whole Foods, which um, I started at 15 bucks an hour as a hot bar chef and worked my way up till I was the team leader of prepared foods, making almost 33 bucks an hour within a couple of years. And with overtime, I would have made a hundred K last year. And, you know, I was just a hard worker, um, you know, grinding and 
and just getting my way to the top with it. Um, and it helped me rebuild my life, get good credit, um, um, get a dog, get a car, do all these things that I never had before, even as a nightclub owner. That's interesting. So you, you, you kind of made your way and worked your way up at Whole Foods. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it was great, you know, until it wasn't until I lost like my passion for it. And, um, I got back, I think like if you're born like an entrepreneur, um, you always have it in you and then it never really goes away. So yeah. I think it just took me a little bit of time to rediscover that and realize like that was my journey and that was my path. And that's what I wanted to do. So walk us into that. How, what you're doing now, how did you get, what made you say, I'm going to be, I'm going to create, I'm going to do this, this show, the, everything that you're doing now. So my friend convinced me to start telling my story on TikTok and social media platforms. So I just started doing videos and my fifth one talking about being in solitary went viral Did like 1.5 million views. And I just started posting and I started studying people like Gary Vee and I started studying other like prison content creators and trying to figure out what they weren't doing. And that was like making professional content. And I also brought a new face to the genre, um, which was, you know, like I'm this white, kid with rosy cheeks and glasses that I'm the least likely person you'd ever expect to be in prison, but I'm relatable in the sense where I could be your son or your brother or, or whatever. And so I'm attracting people of all demographics to watch my page. And, you know, going into January this year, I had a hundred thousand followers on TikTok, a few thousand on every platform. And I'm like, well, this isn't a long-term thing. Talk, I can't talk about me forever get burnt out talking about me. Like I don't even necessarily like now um, telling my story because it's been told so many t times, you know, um, I I'd love for it to be kind of like a movie or a TV series one day, but like sustainably on a podcast, like I couldn't carry my own podcast just about my story all the time. So that's when I got the idea to do these guest interviews um, with other prison content creators and, and people that have went to prison. And it started out as that. And you know, the first few episodes are very cringe and I kind of learned how to adapt, <laughs> um, get better at interviewing, studying people like Jay Shetty. And um, then I upped it to two episodes a week because I saw everyone was doing one. So I wanted to go to two. And um, then in like April, I guess I got a, a big break when that uh, paid for protection clip went viral and more people started looking at my content. And then it's just like over the summer really exploded. I really narrowed down my interviews, got really, you know, to learn how to become a better interview. And then September moved into my own studio, um, kind of designed it the way I wanted it to be. And then started to get big names. We had Chevy chase on. Um, I was with Mike Tyson last weekend, Sylvester Stallone. Um, we're working on getting Tyson on the pod. Um, just doing all these like really cool, exciting things. Um, and I definitely think like 2024 is going to be, it's going to be the game changer I've been waiting for. So cool. And I saw that you were all, you actually got on a board for reentry, which is cool because I think you'd be a great voice for people who, you know, the, you know, this podcast goes into 250 prisons, state prisons and, you know, to, for the belief that you can recreate, you can, you can make a second chance work. I think that's, uh, that's important to have that voice out there that people can make it. Absolutely. Yeah. Like your past does not define you. Yep. Um, and I think that's ultimately like my message and people can get hope from seeing these individuals um, who have gone to the bottom of the world, um, kind of redeem themselves in that way. Such a big deal. Cause I mean, it, it, giving people hope is, is can fuel you a long ways. And the cool, the cool thing about your story is, Ian, is you didn't lose yourself. You, you went through the experience. You still, are Ian Beck and you are still creating, you're still an entrepreneur and you're right. You can't take that out of your DNA when it's in you, you could be at whole foods, you can be making your way up the, the ladder, but in the, in the end you're a creator and a visionary and uh, you got to go out and do that on your own. Yeah. I think I've definitely rediscovered myself. I'm a lot more mature, a lot more humble, a lot more patient than I ever was before. And I, you know, I'm just in a really good, headspace working hard and and seeing the vision and focused on that and keeping my circle close and getting to the end goal yeah keeping your circle close that i'm curious out of the people you know your good friends have have they stayed away 
from you because you had some really close friends that are part of that documentary or are they are they incorporated back into your life? Um, I've lost a lot of friends that weren't technically, I guess you could even say my friends from high school that have been in now the woodwork, like when the HBO doc came out, everyone reached out, the same people that were talking shit on social media reached out to, you know, say, wow, this is so cool, or this and that, you have those people, and then you have the people that reach out when they see you're coming back on top, you're getting featured in big articles, or you're with the celebrities, or this and that. Um, but now I have a couple like close, close high school friends, one that a couple that did visit me while I was in prison and a couple that stayed neutral throughout the situation, but distant. Um, so I have that group of friends and then I have new friends that I've made. Um, but I don't really necessarily have any of the friends that I've, uh, that were around me during the nightclub days. Cause a lot of those friendships were born on being around the celebrities and, and the famous people. Um, I do have this videographer that I was very close with during the tuxedo days who has become a lifelong friend. Um, and, and there's individuals like that. And, and you make some new ones. I've met new people um, in the recent months and whatnot. But ultimately, it's pretty at, at this point in my life, like when new people come into your life, when you're reaching this point, you have to be very careful of who you let into your circle and who you spend your time with. So true. I think that's one of the biggest things, Ian, is when you go through something like that, you you kind of narrow that circle into people that you want to be around. And that's and I, and I also think there's a lot of things, too, where you have the urgency that you don't want to waste any time either. You want to get out and do what you're passionate about and make it happen. Absolutely. Um, I always ask people this, you know, after everything that you've gone through, this whole journey that you've been through, what do you think is your biggest takeaway through the whole thing? Um, I mean, I, I would have to say that it's never really as bad as what you think it is in the moment. I've made a lot of decisions based on thinking it was over. And had I not made those decisions, if I just was patient and waited and kind of see the whole thing, I never would have made those decisions and would have realized I would have made it through it. Um, so, you know, it, it's never really the end. And, um, just get back up, you know, get back up every time. If you keep pushing, you're going to beat out 99% of the people that don't get back up and that fail after one or that, that stay down after that one failure. Um, I, I will attribute my success and whatever success I have in the future to just continuously being consistent. Um, consistency is key. So that's great advice. Really great advice. If Ian, if people want to get to you, I know you got your website, Ian Beck. Uh, obviously they can find you on TikTok, Um, and that's yeah, just ianbick.com. Yeah, yeah. It's got everything very streamlined, very easy. <laughs> that's good. There's a lot of stuff there. I've checked it out. Uh, if anybody wants to get and locked in is your, uh, is your show. So everybody check that out. It's a good show. Great show. Thank you, man. Uh, and if anybody wants to check out a book for Christmas, I still got one. It's out there. It's uh, Nightmare Success. It's uh, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, always appreciate you guys. I've gotten a surge of new reviews uh, on Apple, and that just for some reason puts the show on storage. So I really appreciate everybody doing that. If everybody wants to check me out, BrentCasty.com. That's with a T-Y, not a D-Y. Uh, Sean <laughs> and David never showed up at my door and said that they were my brothers. So I'm T.Y. Cassidy. And uh, as I used to say uh, when I was writing my emails back and forth from Leavenworth, stay strong. I'll do the same. Ian Bick, great story. Love what you're doing. Get back up and make it. It's, it's awesome. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, man. I appreciate the time. Nightmare success, in and out.